reality in our homes and we would be able to show them uh, what your worship truly looks like, Father. Father, again, bless this congregation. We pray for Abby as she continues with her pregnancy. We pray that she would have good health and uh, that the morning sickness would surpass. Father, we pray for Victoria just as she's been ill these past few days. And, uh, Father, we pray that uh, you would take this illness away from her. Father, we lift up the Stedmans as they're traveling, that you would uh, would have allowed them to have a good time in their travels and that you would keep them safe as they return home and uh, fresh and renewed and, and ready to worship you again in your church. Father, we lift up Henry too and uh, his struggles that he's going through. Um, Father, we understand it might be mainly just mental, but uh, you understand and you created him. You know how he works, Father. I pray that you would uh, be with those that tend to him and help them to understand how to communicate well to him and how to understand what he needs. And Father, we, uh, we uh, thank you for anniversaries and birthdays and things that we celebrate, and especially your celebration this day, Father. Help us to celebrate well, thanking you in all of these things that we could look back and see how you've worked in our lives over the years as we celebrate. And Father, we lift up this church, Christ Church, to you, that you would add to our number, you would help us to grow, that you would help us understand the location you want us to worship at, and uh, all the details, Father, that go along with building your church uh, that are in your hands. Help your servants uh, understand that, Father. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, please be seated. So if you're reading along, we'll be in Psalm 22. So though this psalm was written 1,000 years ago, think about what was going on 1,000 years ago. I could say names like William the Conqueror, and our eyes would all say, who's that? So 1,000 years before Jesus died on the cross, this psalm was written. It seems more like a historic account than a prophecy of something that would come. Because the psalm gives incredible clarity around the suffering of Jesus, the suffering that Jesus experienced when he was on the cross, taking us to the depths of his despair. With equal clarity, the psalm shows us what has been accomplished by Jesus' death and the resulting elation that is ours. Indeed, this is a meaty psalm. In fact, I read one pastor who preached a sermon on each and every verse because they were so dense. Today, I am going to paint with a broad brush and try to pick out the major themes of this psalm and just limit myself to one sermon for this passage. But before we turn to the Word of God uh, and read the psalm, let us pray that God would uh, illumine us. O oh Lord, the weight of this psalm is indeed heavy. Impress it upon our souls that we might know your hatred for sin and your love for righteousness. Help us to know, even as we sung, that amazing grace that has been procured for us, for our lineage, and for this world that we may be eternally grateful. Send your spirit that our ears may be opened 
and our hearts may be softened to receive your word. Amen. So, since this psalm is indeed lengthy, I'm going to read it in sections and then provide some comments along the way. So, the first section I'm going to read from is verses 1 through 8. It's a picture of our Lord hanging on the cross. And the words are spilling out in an anguished prayer from his lips. Hear now, verses 1 through 8. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning, Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, and you do not hear, and in the night season, and am not silent. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you, they trusted, and you delivered them. They cried out to you and were delivered. They were not ashamed, or they trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm. And no man, a reproach of men, despised of the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out their lip, they shake their heads, saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. As Jesus finds himself hanging on the cross, take inventory of the events. Over the last time period, Judas Iscariot has betrayed him. Peter has denied him. The other disciples have been scattered as these events took place. The Jewish leaders have lied about him. The soldiers mocked him, spit, spit upon him, beat his back with lashes, placed a cornet, crown of thorns on his head, and now they've crucified him. With this sense of pain, consider the subject of his plea. He did not ask for relief from the physical pain, nor did he ask for personal vengeance. Jesus cries out to his father, asking, Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? Can you not hear my groans in the daytime and my crying at night? Indeed, Jesus did bear a physical burden. But there was this another pain that dwarfed these, namely the mental anguish of facing his father's wrath. Before the foundation of the earth, through all eternity past, Jesus and the father had dwelt in perfect unity. They had lived in a blessed fellowship. There were never any sharp words. No disagreements. Instead, their fellowship was perfect and life-giving. Now upon Jesus lay, was laid the sins of the world, your sins and my sins. The righteous judge, looking upon his son, saw all the wickedness. And now Jesus was experiencing for the first time the wrath and curse of God. That was our due. He knew this was coming. But to mentally know it was only to partially prepare him for the experience. In the middle of this dark time, when his father's face was not shining upon him, there was no word of encouragement, 
yet hear Jesus's great statement of faith. Jesus attests that God is holy. He is righteous and through this suffering and through the suffering he acknowledges that his father's judgments are right. All throughout scripture, Abraham, David, Moses trusted in God. They praised him during difficult times as Jesus does the same. One can only imagine the gut-wrenching cries Jesus is making to his father to deliver him for this horrific suffering. Here we would do well to remember that when God delivers us from challenging times, often it is simply to give us the strength to bear through the pain. Consider the example of the Apostle Paul. He was given 40 lashes. He was beaten three times. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked. And yet, God delivered him, even as he endured. In the dark times, cling to our Lord, trust him alone for deliverance, and wait upon him. You will not be ashamed. With all human hope, when all human hope is gone, keep looking heavenward. Keep crying out. In verse 6, we have an interesting phrase I want to draw your attention to where Jesus says he is a worm, not a man, but despised and ridiculed by people. little segue here. To the crafty serpent in the garden, God cursed and said he would crawl around in the dust. And to the woman, he said there would be enmity between your offspring and the snake. To Adam, he said, he said that uh, from dust he came, and to dust he shall return. So, what's happening here on the cross? Jesus becomes one who crawls in the dust like a worm, taking on the curse, but there's nothing to fear. He's not a snake. There's nothing to fear. Worms do not bite. As one who crawls around in the dust, Jesus is seen as weak, looked upon, looked down upon, despised, and ridiculed by men. Indeed, Jesus returned to the dust. He took on the curse of Adam's descendants. Why? That we might live. Yet while on the cross, the crowd ridicules Jesus, saying he saved others, let him save himself. Jesus is the one who deserves our praise. And yet what did he receive? The taunts, showing the strength of his character. So in the middle of this excruciating agony, what appears to be utter helplessness, here again, uh, Jesus' wonderful testimony. Now I'm on to verses 9 through 11. And these serve as a little bit of an interlude from all the pain and suffering that's going on. Verses 9 and 11. But you, but you are he who took me out of the womb, who made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. So consider at the beginning of Jesus' life, when his physical strength was the weakest, this little helpless baby, he learned to trust in God. This is not hyperbole. For, for even at his birth, wicked men sought to kill this baby. You remember the wise men from the east? They approached Herod, the Roman leader of the Jews. They said, we've seen a star. We know the king has been born. 
Herod demands that they go find the child and then report back to him. But yet these men being divinely warned, these wise men elude Herod and what does he do? He goes on a fanatical rampage, killing all the male babies in that region under the age of two. The babe, Jesus, escapes from this wicked man, and he learned to trust, he learned to trust his God, even as he was delivered from his mother's womb and suckled at her breast. God gave him life, God fed him, and God protected him. Jesus reminds his soul of this wonderful testimony that God has been with him all the days of his life, especially in times of trouble when there is no human help. Conduct your own inventory of God's mercies. Remind yourself of those near-death experiences and God's wonderful ways. From the cross, Jesus is reminding us to stand strong. Now, turn back from the scene of the cross. Turn back to the scene of the cross and look around. Look at the crowd that's gathered there. So from verses 12 through 21. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. Their mouth, they gape at me with their mouths. Like a raging and roaring lion, I am poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue clings to the to my jaws. You have brought me out, brought me to the dust. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my clothes. And my clothing they cast lots. But you, O oh Lord, do not be far from me. O oh, my strength, hasten to me. Deliver me from the sword. My precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. If you know anything about history, we'll say Hitler was a fool. For he fought a war on two fronts. The Russians on the east and the allies on the west. In this passage, we see that Jesus has three gathered enemies to fight. The strong bulls of Bashan the roaring lions raging with their mouth wide open, and finally the dogs, or the congregation of the wicked. So Bashan, if you look it up, was a place of green, lush, lush pastures, and the, and the bulls from there were well-fed and strong. I see the bulls of Bashan as the Roman government and their soldiers, strong and mighty. They were beastly men, beating and taunting and then crucifying the innocent one. The religious leaders, or the Pharisees, were likened to the roaring lions who attacked Jesus with their false accusations as they clamored for his blood to be spilled. The final enemy mentioned were the wild dogs, or the gathered congregation of the people. They were less powerful individually, but operated in a pack egging each other on. They, too, wanted his blood spilled. The wicked of the congregation were likely some of the same people who a few days earlier were singing his praise as he triumphantly entered Jerusalem, riding on the donkey with palm branches laid before his way. As these wicked enemies were working in combination, consider the details of this psalm, this psalm 
about our Lord's death. They encircled him. They put nails in his hands and his feet. His bones were protruding. He was thirsty. He was overwhelmed and his tongue clings to his mouth. Jesus was being emptied as a drink offering that we might be saved. The last vestige of human strength was poured out. His heart was like wax and part of their perks. It was routine for the executioners to get the criminal's clothing. Instead of dividing it, the soldiers gambled to see who would get the entire article. And such that Jesus hung before the crowd naked, showing himself to be the second Adam. The original Adam was created from dust, given life, and then when he sinned, he needed clothes to cover his shame. Jesus took our sin, bore our shame, hung naked, and he would be laid in the dust of the tomb that we might live. Consider, as you consider this horrific scene, we might see Jesus as a victim. But think again. He is a victor. He walked to the cross. He knew what was going to happen. And he willingly bore our stripes that we might be made whole. The Heavenly Father used these wicked men, the Roman soldiers, the Pharisees, the taunting crowd, as judgment for our sins that Jesus bore. These wicked men held nothing back. They shot their entire wad upon him, and he willingly took it. He was no helpless victim. He was the victor. And if you have any doubts, let's have a look at the next section of this psalm, which will highlight this point. Here now the rest of the psalm, and particularly note the change in the tenor. I'll be reading from verses 22 all the way to the end. Starting, sorry, with... Uh, the last part of 21. You have answered me. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all offspring of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows to those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All ends of the world shall remember and turn to our Lord. And all families of the nation shall worship before, shall worship before you for the Kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him. Even he cannot keep himself alive. A posterity shall serve him. It shall be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born. That he has done this. So from the horrific and bloody scene, Jesus has been pleading with his father to respond and to answer. Indeed, his father does respond and answer. But it was after he was laid in the grave for three days. So 1,000 years after this psalm was written, we know how it turned out. We know how the story ended. 
We know how the world has been changed. The father responded, and Jesus was resurrected from the dead. No longer were earthly tyrants uh, be able to control Christ or his followers. He has been resurrected, and now he ascends to heaven to the highest throne. He's out of their reach. He has been given a name greater than their name than any other ruler. And whatever power they have on earth, it's for a time. He's greater. His disciples, including us, will inherit this resurrection. The earthly powers of this world can threaten us with bodily harm. But we are a people of the resurrection. We know we will die, maybe at the hands of petty tyrants, but we will be raised and we will pass on to new life. We fear God, we serve him. We don't fear the threats of men. We no longer fear those who have the power over our bodies for a time. We fear him who controls our souls and our ultimate destiny. After Jesus' resurrection, the saints for millennial, millennials have been calling the bluff of these worldly powers stating that their first allegiance is to our Lord. If they died as martyrs, they rejoiced. And this frustrated the tyrants, realizing their power over them was worthless. The news of the resurrection is good news, and Jesus responds that he will tell it to the great assembly, to the offspring of Israel, to the descendants of Jacob, and to any who will fear him. Regarding this good news, Jesus says that he will declare it to the brethren, here, take note. Take note of this word, brethren. In the beginning, we were one of his creative works. With the sin and fall of Adam, we sought to define ourselves, to determine our destiny. We tried to become our own God. Ultimately, we became enemies of God. With the death and resurrection of Jesus, we are now brothers. We are now brothers. We could have simply been rejoiced to move from the status of enemy to servant, but this blessings, his blessings are more than we can imagine. Because of the work of our older brother, Jesus, we are now adopted as sons of God. We have the privilege of calling God our Abba, Father, which is a term of affection. As sons, we are called to take notice of our Father, to imitate his works, and to follow in his footsteps. If you have any doubts as what you should do, then look to your older brother and follow him. As sons of God, now look, to, look at that which we are inheriting from the Father because of the work of Jesus. He knows the affliction of the afflicted, for he has personally experienced horrific suffering. There is a purpose in suffering, and it will be glorious because this is how God works. The poor and broken of this world shall find wholeness in him. All ends of earth shall worship our Lord. He came as Savior of the world to set prisoners free, and not only a few individuals, but families and lineages. These families and lineages compromise na or comprise nations. To those who love our Lord, he has promised to be their God and a God to their children for a thousand generations. In previous times, God made a covenant with the Israelites, and he saved a chosen people unto himself. Now in this new covenant, 
God is saving families of nations into a thousand generations. The Israelites of old were given the land of Canaan as their possession. And by faith, we acknowledge Jesus died to save the world, to reverse the curse as far as it is found. We are to take possession of this world. That is our promised land. The promise is great, and we need the spirit-inspired imagination to comprehend it all. In fact, or in this psalm, the fact is stated that Jesus is ruler over all nations. Not that he should be or will be, but that he is ruler. Jesus died to claim this world as his own. Not all acknowledge the fact, but it's still true. Let me quote another psalm, Psalm 2. The rulers of this nation will either kiss the sun and serve him, or else they will be dashed with his iron scepter and destroyed. All power in heaven and earth has been given to him. He sends us out that we may call all nations to repent, to baptize them and their children, so they may enter into covenant with our Lord. We teach them to, to make their vows, to worship him as they sing and pray, and eat before him. We are not after a few individuals in any nation. Instead, we expect God will save whole lineages and ultimately large swaths of nations. As the gospel went out in the early church, we see whole families coming into covenant with God. Family baptisms. The Roman soldier, Cornelius, believed the testimony of Peter and his whole family was baptized. The Philippian jailer, believed after the earthquake, believed the testimony of Paul and Silas, and he and his whole family were baptized that very night. God has worked the same. Remember, Abraham believed, was brought into the covenant, and not only him, but all of his descendants took the sign. God is still working in the same manner. God has given us a role in bringing faith to future generations. To these subsequent generations, whether they are your children or grandchildren. We are to retell the great and mighty works of God. This includes the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as well as the stories of God's dealing with more recent family members. In this way, in this way we prove that God is working salvation in our children. Those and those that are initially far off will receive it. Generation after generation will come to worship our Lord declaring the righteous works he has done. What a privilege it will be to meet those grandchildren to a thousand generations in heaven whom God has graciously worked in their life that they learn to trust in him from their mother's womb and while nursing at her breast. This psalm is rich beyond measure, taking us to the depths of despair as we see Jesus hanging on the cross and then to the high vistas and calling us to look into the future, seeing the grandeur of the good news upon our family members and the whole world. By way of application, let me remind you of a few points. First, the death on the cross that Jesus faced was horrific. And this is what our sins deserved. Our God is holy beyond measure, and our sins were wicked. In our own selfishness and foolishness and outright disobedience, we were objects of wrath, deserving damnation. Once you understood what your sins deserved, then you see that Jesus willingly took them on to free us. Look back, looking back at the cross, may we never forget the judgment that was ours. 
and then understand the love of Jesus that was displayed there. Declare with the saints before us that we were wretches, but we've been saved by amazing grace. In response to this amazing grace, spend the rest of your life worshiping and serving our Lord. Next, in the dark times, hold on tight to the Lord. You may lose your health. You may lose your, your friends may abandon you. You may be surrounded by a whole host of enemies. God may be silent for a time. But hold on. Trust him. Recount your own soul. Recount to your own soul his past faithfulness all the way from birth to the present day. Call out to him. Do not stop crying out and wait. In these dark times, it is in these dark times that God is often performing his greatest works. When we are weak, he is strong. Call upon him, wait upon him, and watch to see how the tide turns. Before you, before you know it, the despair of the cross will be changed into the exaltation associated with the resurrection. Finally, by faith, understand the magnitude of God's goodness. He's not saving a few individuals here and there. He is saving family lineages. And this for a thousand generations to come. He saves families, and as they live together with other families in Christ, they marry. They have children. And guess what these form? Nations. Now consider our task is to go and baptize these families, to bring them into covenant with God, encouraging them to make vows unto him, to worship him aright, to offer their bodies as living sacrifices. Jesus did. Obey that they should obey God and let him, let God pour each of us out as a drink offering. There's nothing left at the end. Remember that we are no longer his enemies, nor his servants. We are his brothers. Sons of God, sons of the Father in heaven. As God has recorded, these various stories in his word and is now writing them in your own life. Tell them to your children. Tell them to your grandchildren and expect the blessings for a thousand generations. Understand this is what Jesus accomplished with that horrific death on the cross. Know that you can see that our Lord was not a victim, but a victor. Let's pray to this God. Heavenly Father, Holy Father, indeed we struggle to understand the wickedness associated with our sins, and there we do not fully grasp that which Jesus endured. In like manner, we do not comprehend the height, the depth, nor the width of your love fully. Oh, or the mercy and the grace upon us and our lineages. Increase our understanding and our experience in this amazing grace. And may we be faithful brethren to take our part. And all God's people said together, Amen. Amen.